Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And back to our roots on the College Football Survivor Show. Shahan, a year ago, you and I started this show around this time talking about playoff contenders. We established, hey, these are the teams that are definitely playoff contenders. And then six, seven, eight weeks leading into last season, we talked about, should this team join our discussion, right? And we we broke them down. You had a vote. I had a vote. And then the fans had a vote on whether to make them part of the discussion. And the whole part of this is we rank all these contenders against each other. And over the course of the next six to seven weeks, we're going to rank everybody who has the best quarterback, who has the best defense, who has the best coach. Today, we're doing who has the best path to the playoff. And we only want to talk about teams that matter. We're at that point. Now, we've been doing this for a year now, and we just did a whole breakdown. We broke down every Power Five conference with some really smart people from around the country. We've really dug in on these teams more. Last year, we were coming in fresh. But as it we're sticking kind of with the formula here in July and August. Is it because we just couldn't think anything else or is it because it's so successful? We're doing it again. I mean, we've been here a year and nobody's kicked us off the air. So clearly we're doing something right. Also, uh, also, I do have to mention, uh, you know, we did a whole off season's worth of shows. These shows are a lot easier, man. Having a format coming in, just getting to talk some football. This is this is the the, the way to go. So this is uh, we'll, we'll do it this way. Listen. On the Apple show, and if if you guys listen to this free one each week, we're so grateful. We also do a show for Apple Podcast subscribers. You get four of those shows a month for three no, no two ninety nine, three ninety nine, two ninety nine, two ninety nine. Ah, what a deal! What I should know that two ninety nine. It's less than it's like seventy five cents a show. We're going to cover like a lot of the news and the what's going on in college football. On those shows, we just did that. We talked about Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner. We talked about the Pac-12 and the Big 12. They discussed a merger or getting together. They're not going to do that. Sort of news of the week will be on that show. And there is news like the as we record this on Wednesday morning, the SEC continues its media days. The ACC is starting their media days right now. But also, if there's stuff that pops up, we'll drop it in here as needed. But really, these shows now are going to be about breaking down who deserves to be in the discussion. So last week on the Apple show, we decided the four sure things in college football that are definitely in the contender mix, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson. Shahan and I disagreed on Clemson, but I elbowed him in the ribs and we went over the top and we put Clemson in. So those four teams are already in. We are going to rank those four teams based on who has the easiest path to the playoff on this show today. But we're also going to throw in Oklahoma and Baylor, maybe, because Shahan, Oklahoma and Baylor, we're going to talk about two teams today, whether they should be voted in to that contender group before the season. And let's start with Baylor. Because Baylor at Big 12 Media Days, where you were last week, was voted by Big 12 Media the preseason Big 12 favorite. I'll let you make the case for why Baylor should be in this contender mix. Why do they deserve that? To me, the case is simple. I I think that Baylor comes into 2022 with arguably the best combination of line talent, uh, not just in the Big 12, but among the best in the nation. Uh, They bring back four offensive linemen, and the one that they replaced was a part-timer. 
on defense. They they bring back every single member of the two deep on the defensive line uh, and add also Jackson Player, who's a future NFL player on the interior. They are replacing a quarterback, but it's because the guy who came in beat out the guy who was already there, Gary Bohannon, who led them to the Big 12 championship. So in my opinion, I, I think that uh, that Baylor was a year early in a lot of ways by winning the Big 12 and going 12-2. and two. And I think we're only going to start seeing a roster that's moving more in the direction of Dave Rand over the years. So I, I think when you look at the combination of line talent, of recruiting depth that they built up over the past couple of years and potential upside because of a new quarterback coming in who I think gives them more passing ability. They have a chance to not just be as good as they were last year. They have a chance to be even better. So this is entering Dave Aranda's third season as the Baylor head coach. And I'm making the case here for why they should not be in the contender mix right now. They went two and seven in his first year. They went 12 and two last year. Last year, they were picked to finish eighth. In the Big 12, this year they're picked to finish first in the Big 12. They had some special guys. I know that you liked, you thought they had some special guys. Jalen Petrie is one of the best safeties in the country. Went number 37 overall early in the second round of the NFL draft. Tyquan Thornton as a really fast receiver drafted by the Patriots in the second round. They had a couple kind of special dudes, and I know they're solid in the trenches. I don't know if they have that kind of talent in the secondary and on the outside. Listen, I don't know that we can wrap our heads around Baylor all the way yet. And in this preseason, it's possible that last year, I don't want to call it a blip, but it was like an early peak where they kind of wedged themselves into an opening when Spencer Rattler and Lincoln Riley kind of fell apart at Oklahoma and Steve Sarkeesian in year one at Texas wasn't ready and somebody had to win the Big 12. And Oklahoma State was good. I get it. But it might be a bridge too far to start assuming things about Baylor. There's a lot of these programs kind of in this tier that when you underestimate them, they rise up. But I have real questions about now that you're expected to do something, can you handle it? They're going to have a chance to earn their way into this list early in the season. They have an early game against BYU that's really going to matter. But I'm not sure we have to put them in now. So I think those are the two sides. I do wonder that about Baylor. Listen, people, Shahan went to Baylor. What are you going to do? We're not talking about the school. We're not going to talk about the school that I went to. So, like, it, it doesn't mean the shot Shahan can't uh, fairly look at Baylor here. I will say we put this out. If you guys want to be part of this on Twitter, CFB Survivor Show, every week we're going to put out the teams we're talking about, and you can vote yes or no. Should we continue to talk about them? And you're going to control the content of this show because if we tie, you're the tiebreaker. There are three votes, one for me, one for Shahan, one for you guys. We have those votes in. Shahan retweeted it, and Shahan just happens to be the most famous person in the Baylor football universe. I mean, Robert Griffin III is right there. Second most famous person <laughs> in the Baylor football universe. So we will tell you there's a little Baylor juice in that voting. But as we think about this program, Shahan, 12-2 and two last year, three years ago they were 11-3 and three in the last year of Matt Rule that got him the NFL job that led to Dave Aranda. So that's double-digit wins two of the last three years for two different coaches. How much should we think of Baylor as – sort of a program that is establishing something that's here to stay? 
And how much should we think of them as a program that had a really good year last year, but there's a lot of programs that have a great year and then a mediocre year and a great year, then a mediocre year. Which one are they closer to? Well, I think that, uh, like you said, you know, look at the three-year trend. Uh, there, There is an 11-win season. There's a 2-7 and seven during the COVID season with the first-year head coach who didn't get a real camp. And then there was last year, right? So I, I think that it's probably something closer to what it was last year. Now, now again, I do personally agree that, you know, last year's team was not, I don't think, the best team that they've had in a while. But I think that what they did well was they played close games really well. I, I think that they were early, like I mentioned. I thought that Dave Aranda managed games incredibly well, honestly. I think that was a huge part of their success. And so I kind of feel like last year's team was early. I don't think that last year's team was as good as its record. And I think that actually the roster is starting to catch up to the results now. Now, mm. Like you mentioned, Jalen Petrie, I, I think one of the best players in all of college football last year. Uh, another guy who you didn't mention, Abram Smith, that running back. Uh, I, I think he only went in the seventh round or maybe undrafted, uh, but, but he was a great college player. He had like 1,500 rushing yards. So the question is, do they feel confident that they can find skill talent? Because you mentioned Thornton off, uh, RJ Sneed transferred to Colorado. Uh, they're going to be relying on a lot of young players. And so... You're bringing in this this young quarterback in Blake Shapin, who did beat out Gary Bohannon. But do you have the pass catchers there? I, I'm pretty confident that they do, but it's not a sure thing by any means. Uh, talking to people around campus, you know, they really like the cornerbacks that they have, even though they're replacing both of them. Uh, but they feel like athletically, size wise, that these guys potentially provide an upgrade. But that's a lot to expect, right? Like, that's a lot to assume that, oh, well, everything in your passing game on both sides of the ball is just going to be fine. Uh, you know, obviously, this is what Dave Aranda does, right? He, he puts together great, uh, great defenses, but it is an assumption in some ways. So I, I think, though, that the thing for me is like, I felt like last year, last year's team had a high ceiling and a low floor with the way that they set things up. I felt like, this year's team has a much higher floor than last year because of what they bring back in the trenches. But, you know, I, I think the, I think the ceiling in terms of being big 12 champs uh, and specifically being 12 and one big 12 champs, which I think they'd need to do in order to make the college football playoff. The question becomes, you know, is, is the ceiling 12 and one big 12 champs in a spot in the playoff and I think some of that just depends on whether the passing game ends up moving from being something that's consistent uh, to, for them to something that's a real strength. And, and that would be a change. And, and it feels like they leaned into that because Dave Aranda at Big 12 Media Days when you were there was talking about the idea of I try to sort of put the, the person over the player that matters to me more. I want to see who you are. I love Gary Bohannon. I wouldn't. Happy have Baylor football wouldn't be Baylor football. I wouldn't be me without Gary Bohannon. I have pictures in my house of Gary Bohannon with my kid. But in this situation, we went player over person, and it's because they want to throw better. And they think Blake Shapin is the better passer. They didn't even he didn't even say, I think he's the better quarterback. He throws it better. And I do think right when Blake Shapin in his opportunities last year did throw it better, was more accurate, can get the ball down the field more. And so it feels like in a year when they were right on the edge of the playoff, they still thought they were a little short there. As you said, Dave Randa and defense, that's always going to work. They liked their run game last year, but they didn't think they threw it well enough. And they thought that to the extent that they 
kind of told the program leader, we're sorry, but we're going with the guy who throws it better, which I think is a pretty huge indication of how important they think that is. It's a little bit of a risk, but I kind of like not resting on your laurels there. And I like because I do think you can be trapped in a world where your trenches are good, your defense is solid, you're always going to be in every game, you won a lot of games late and close, and you're happy with that. But they weren't because they don't only want – I think this is the kind of move that you make and you make a quarterback change like this because you want to be the best team in the country. Because you don't want to be in the discussion and trying to win the Big 12. You want more than that. So how much of a risk do you think this is to go to Blake Shapin? And what did did you think it tells you something about what Dave Aranda wants Baylor football to be? Oh, yeah. Well, I I mean, to go back uh, to, to the 2020 season, right? I think that it would have been so easy and honestly very legitimate to just say, well, that was weird. We didn't get much practice time. We didn't get to know each other. Let's let's just pretend that never happened and kind of come back in 2021 and move on. But instead, Dave Aranda felt like their strategy on the offensive side of the ball wasn't working. And he fired Larry Fedora, who's a very well-respected coach, was one of really the marquee hires that Dave Aranda had when he came in. Former Former North Carolina head coach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let go of the offensive line coach with it. Uh, I believe let go of the wide receivers coach as well. I can't remember exactly how that happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was he was also the pass game coordinator. Like, those were really big-time hires when he brought them in. And he was like, this isn't working uh, very quickly. And obviously brings in Jeff Grimes as offensive coordinator, who was a finalist now for the Broyles Award because of what he did last season. Brings in Eric Mateos, who I think has done a tremendous job as Baylor's offensive line coach. Uh, and brought in Chancey Stuckey, who lasted a year at Baylor because immediately Notre Dame was like, that guy rules. We want that guy. <laughs> and, so, and now he's recruiting all the best receivers in the country. So like Dave Aranda has done a pretty insane job of finding ways to uh of finding ways to continue to upgrade and it's funny because he's not by any means a cutthroat guy right like he's by no means like that kind of personality but he's very thoughtful and so when he makes a decision like this it's hard not to buy into it because i know that he has thought about it very deeply he's thought about all the implications of it he understands the impact it'll probably have on the offense in terms of uh, of losing this guy who is going to be a senior starting quarterback right like that matters but uh but i think the fact that they felt confident enough to change to blake shapen says a lot about what they think of blake shapen i think it also says a lot about what they think of kyron drones who's their backup now uh who's an underclassman and so no, I, I think that they really feel like they need to be more dynamic in the passing game. Because the reality is, I like their, I, I think their offensive line is great. And I like some of the running backs that they have uh, behind uh, Abram Smith after last year. But I think that they understand we can't just run the way that we did with Abram Smith last year. Because that was one of the best running backs in college football last year. We have to be able to be more dynamic in the passing game to make up for some of that. Because... You know, look, one of the things is Tyquan Thornton was a really good player for Baylor, but because of the way the offense was structured the last two years, you never really saw the best of him. You never really did. I, I think that, you know, we started to see flashes of it when Blake Shapin started two games for Baylor, but like Tyquan Thornton ended up being a real potential pick by the New England Patriots in the second, second round because of his measurables. I don't think that Baylor necessarily took advantage of his skills, and I think that's a big part of why they ended up making this decision. Five years from now. Dave Aranda is still at Baylor. 
Baylor is the best team in Texas and a legitimate regular playoff contender. Yes or no? No, but yes to yes to the latter half, no to the first half. I, I think that the playoff has expanded to a point where Baylor is definitely in the conversation all the time. I, I think that Texas and Texas A&M in terms of quality, right? I mean, they're going to have all this money and prestige in the SEC. So like, I think that one of those two teams will probably be a quote unquote better team. But I think that Baylor will be right there in the top 10 conversation. Again, some of this depends on how the sport works out after this, uh, this realignment. But I, I think that Baylor's going to be arguably the class of the big 12 every single year. And you think Dave Aranda is there for good? Like Baylor, will, like Baylor will be able to pony up because somebody's going to come for him. They came for him. They came for him after last year. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah, stayed. Yeah. And he stayed. Does Baylor have the resources to keep a guy like Dave Aranda if, in three years, Penn State comes for him? I think they'd be able to hold off a lot of places. Um, you know, when you, when you hear Dave Aranda talk. I mean, five years is a long time for any coach, right? Like, I'm almost not assuming that any coach will be at a job after five years. But, um, you know, I I think that Dave Aranda feels like Baylor's a really good fit for him uh, in terms of how he's able to run his program. I don't think that he's a a plug and play a lot of places, right? Like, I don't think he'd make any sense at LSU. I I don't think he'd fit there. Even though he was a defensive coordinator when they won the national championship. Right, right. I think that he needs sort of the ability to be left alone a little bit, if that makes sense, uh, and, and sort of be able to kind of run things the way that he wants to run things. And and so I don't think that he'd fit in a job that has a lot of uh, outside influence. Now, there are jobs that aren't like that, right? Like, I think that uh, in some ways, Ohio State, right? Like Ohio State, I think you really get a lot of leeway as the head coach to be able to to run things the way you want to. Uh, you know, but I, I, for me, it's why I never could see him going to the SEC. Like, I, I think that even though he was an assistant in the SEC for so many years, the Big Ten makes a lot more sense. Actually, you know, a job that uh, I, I think that Baylor would probably be able to hold him off, but like a job that he makes a ton of sense at is like Wisconsin, right? He was defensive coordinator there as well. And I think that he'd be able to add something to what already exists there. Um, again, I, I think that that Dave Aranda is very, very happy at Baylor. I think that the reasons for him being there have a lot less to do with pure football and have a lot also to do with like the way that he feels like he's able to structure his life, if that makes sense, uh, as the head coach at Baylor. It's complicated. Like, people, you guys need to listen to Dave Aranda talk. You guys need to watch interviews with him because I can't totally explain it because a lot of this sounds insane talking about a football coach, but that's Dave Aranda. Like, Dave Aranda is a different kind of guy, and I think that I feel pretty confident that he's going to be there through 2024, 2025. Again, when a coach is somewhere for five years, I don't think you just assume that they're there forever. I mean, that's just reality. But uh, but I think that Dave Aranda isn't going to be going anywhere in the next year or two. And this is, you believe it, and I believe this, Baylor is not a blip. They've had success under multiple co- coaches, There is, uh, multiple styles. Um, there is obviously... Uh, football matters there. There's sort of some things in place with the structure where different kinds of people can win there. I, I agree. I think most people in college football would agree that Dave Aranda is a real dude. So you can't brush off last year as a flash in the pan. So I will tell you that not surprisingly, the good people on Twitter say yes. Baylor should be in our discussion. Again, this was retweeted by Baylor grad Shahanjay Haraja. And so 
They got a little juice. 69% say, yes, Baylor should be in. So that's one vote in for Baylor. I'll let you vote next, Shahan. Yes or no, should they be in our preseason discussion? So I have to preface this. Obviously, longer time listeners of the show will know that when we put together our list of potential playoff teams back in March or whatever, that I was a little more bearish than you on the idea hold of on, actually Hold being- on, hold on. What does bearish mean? I can never remember bearish and bullish. I'm not a stock guy and I can't remember. They're both strong. It's not like bullish and beaverish. You know, it's like it's two big, strong things. How are you supposed to keep that straight? I'll tell you exactly how I keep it straight. Okay, so it's bullish versus bearish, right? Uh, The bulls have actually won something and my bears have never won anything. Oh, that's very good. So bearish is bad. (laughs) Yes. I also don't also I do this with opaque. I don't know if opaque means that you can see through it or you can't see through it. I know it's one of those two. Oh, it's really <laughs> opaque. It's like, what does that mean? Because it could it has a Q in it. Well, <laughs> I, I think that it's sort of like uh, you can see through it, but like it's it's diminished a little bit like it's cloudy. It's cloudy. Then just say cloudy. There's a lot of words that have other. Here's meanings. here's here's words oh, we okay, say. No, it's it's straight up it's straight up not transparent. Ah, see, you didn't know yeah. either. Okay, so, yeah. so we can say uh, good. <laughs> we can say good and bad. Let's just say good and bad. We'll just keep it a good and bad. Okay. So again, you thought you were less. You were badder on Baylor. <laughs> In yes. March, I okay. I was less optimistic about Baylor being a playoff team. No, no, I. I'll, I'll cast my vote. I think they should be in, but uh, in our discussion. But when we had this conversation a couple months ago, you actually had them in your way too early playoff. And for me, I couldn't quite get there. But I think the I think the case for how they could get there is pretty easy to make, right? I mean, it's that the quarterback position improves noticeably. It's that they've recruited really well at wide receiver and they brought in another good receivers coach in Dallas Baker who gets their guys ready for, for prime time. Uh, they have enough depth at running back that even though they can't replace an Abram Smith, uh, they're still going to be fine behind a great offensive line, one of the best in the country. And defensively, you kind of just trust that Dave Aranda is going to figure it out at linebacker and safety uh, where they have a lot of talent. So I think the case is pretty easy to make. The the one thing I will mention is that the schedule is tougher this year. They go on the road to BYU. They have to play more of these games uh, on the road, like Oklahoma. Uh, So, so there is like, usually when you think of uh, like, like Baylor kind of has an on year and an off year, like in, in uh, odd seasons, they usually have an easier schedule than in even years. So they go at Iowa State, they go at West Virginia, at Texas Tech, at Texas, at Oklahoma. That's that's a pretty difficult slate in addition to at BYU. That that would be my big reservation as well. But, I mean, I, th- I think that Dave Aranda, whether it's this year or whether he's setting up for this year, I, I think Dave Aranda is going to have some of the best teams that Baylor has had over the past couple of years. So do you trust them? I, I think the conversation becomes, do you trust the better team to handle a tougher schedule because they're a better team. I, it, it's a tough question, um, but I, I think that certainly I believe in them enough to think that they're one of the 12 best teams in the country. I do think if you're going to be in this discussion, I'm not super interested in like, well, your schedule's tougher. You got to go to Iowa State. That trip to Ames is like, all right, what are we doing here then? Oh, you got to go to West Virginia. You got to go to Texas Tech. This conversation is, though, 
about being in the discussion for the playoff. And I mean, we, we talked about it with Clemson last week. I mean, I, I did look at their schedule and say, you have to go to Wake Forest. I'm curious about that. Like, I, I think that the discussion between can this team make the playoff and can this team win the national championship are two totally different discussions. And, and again, we really, most of the time, we do not discuss can a team win the national championship because as soon as you start saying, I don't know if they can beat Bama, it's like, let's end the show. Congratulations. There's one team on this uh, on this show. <laughs> Welcome back, yeah, to the, the Bama Survivor Show. I mean, so like, that's not the question. The question is, can can you legitimately get in and I think they can. I obviously think they deserve to be in this discussion. I think there remains an opening in the Big 12. It's year one of Brent Venables at Oklahoma. It's year two of Steve Scar- Sarkeesian at Texas, but it's year one of Quinn Ewers. They still might be threading a needle here. Oklahoma State lost Jim Knowles. Baylor, I think, has is sort of like the most established program in the Big 12 right now. That they they did what they did last year and – they didn't have a hole blown in the side of what they did, right? They can kind of still do the same thing. So I think they're definitely in. I think the voters are right. I think you're right. I feel very comfortable with this. And I also think their schedule might be right in the perfect zone, which is good enough to get respect, but actually not the kind of schedule where they legitimately have seven games they could lose, right? That, you know, that, I mean, you've got to, they got to be able to beat Texas, right? I'm not I'm not blowing Texas off. I think Texas is actually going to be pretty competitive. But if you can't beat Texas this year where Texas is still trying to get it together, then you're then you're not a playoff contender, right? But I I just think there's a lot of things in place for them that I I think a lot of what of what they have is a really good fit for this season. No, a lot of these uh, things that we're talking about are a little bit of a comparison to what I said about Clemson last week, which is, you know, in the ACC, if you're great, then like it's pretty easy because nobody else's grades. But if you're only pretty great, then all of a sudden there's like seven games that that look like they might be an issue. And so I, I think that there's a real chance that Baylor is great and nobody else is great in the Big 12. But again, it, it is sort of that like, like if you're a nine in terms of quality, then you can blow through the schedule. But if you're an eight, then all of a sudden it becomes a lot tougher. So I think that there is definitely a pathway for Baylor to be a great team uh, and be able to kind of push through the Big 12. But, you know, it's uh, obviously I think that there still will be stumbling blocks. Uh, and I really I mean, seriously, we're going to figure out long term whether Baylor's going to be on this list on September 10th when they go and play BYU on the road. That's going to be a huge game for both of these teams. And whoever wins that game is a lock to be on our list the next week. I agree with that. BYU is a team I think we probably will end up discussing before the start of the season and whether they deserve to be in. Let's move. We can't go as long as Oklahoma as we did on Baylor. It'll be a three-hour show. Oklahoma, I'll make the case for why they should be in. They finished second in the Big 12 preseason poll. Dylan Gabriel coming from Central Florida. He broke his shoulder like in September last year and was lost for the year. The year before, that was his third year as a starter at Central Florida. The year before... You know, you start going through that college football season of 2020 and you're looking at Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields and a lot of the other. Co- I think you could have made a case that Dylan Gabriel was one of the 10 or 12 best quarterbacks in college football that year. Um, 
He's a real dude. He's coming into an offense with Jeff Levy, who Brent Venables hired as the offensive coordinator. It seems like a really good hire. Dylan Gabriel, seven, 70 touchdowns, 14 interceptions in his career. In 2020, he was 32 touchdowns, four picks. Um, he's a real guy. And Brent Venables is a real guy on the defensive side of the ball of building a great defense. So, yeah, there's a lot of turnover. Yeah, it's year one. But, man, if I'm starting – with a defensive head coach who's one of the best defensive minds in college football. And then on the offensive side of the ball, I say, well, we got a veteran quarterback who in his three-year career as a starter at times has looked like one of the 10 best quarterbacks in the country. I don't know. Are there 12 teams like that in the country that could start with that? So it's not perfect, but I think for a first-year program, there's some stuff in place. In Norman. So I, th- I think that's why you've got to think about them. Why no? Why no, Shahad? Brent Venables mentioned at Big 12 Media Days that 40% of the roster is new. 40%. I mean, that's a huge amount that has never put on an Oklahoma jersey. Uh, I, I think defensively, I'm confident in what Brent Venables is building long term, but I don't know how quickly it's going to come together. Right? I, I, they lost some really key guys, especially on the defense side of the ball. Uh, you know, Nick Benito, just guys like that who I think were big time players for them, Isaiah Thomas. Uh, and they replaced them with transfers, but these aren't guys who have played at this level before. They're, these aren't guys who have had the expectations of playing at Oklahoma before. And on the offensive side of the ball, I I like Marvin Mims a lot at wide receiver, but the rest of, I think, the entire offense is almost filled with question marks. Uh, Behind Marvin Mims, I don't love what they have coming back. They lost a bunch of receivers to the transfer portal. At running back, they lost their best guy in Kennedy Brooks. On the offensive line, they were kind of a mess last year, and and they bring a lot back, but are these players going to be elite like they've been the past couple of years and I do have a lot of questions about Dylan Gabriel you know how how much of this is Dylan Gabriel's talent versus how much of it was playing in a very quarterback friendly system because the guy before him in in Mackenzie Milton was an even better player than him in a similar system and the guy who came in after him Max Keen also managed to put together a lot of the similar type numbers to what uh, Dylan Gabriel has done over the years so this was a very quarterback-friendly system in a league that I don't think could punish you for playing in, in an easy offense. I don't know if that's going to be the case in the Big 12, where almost the entire Big 12 is built to stop what Dylan Gabriel does. So for me, there's a lot of question marks. Uh, it's a new coaching staff who's never coached together. It's new players who have never played together. I have some questions. Oklahoma a year ago was one of the four sure things. They were one of the teams with Ohio State, Clemson, and Alabama that it's like, of course, because they had been a consistent playoff. They had made four playoffs. Lincoln Riley goes, this is about as transitional of a season for a program as I think you'll ever find to go from such an offensive identity with the head coach to such a defensive identity. You're talking about, again, as Brent, as you said, 40% of the guys have never worn an Oklahoma jersey before. In a lot of those times, you can pop in year two, maybe. Man, it's hard to pop in year one, right? That it's 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 one of those um on my on the Ohio State show, on the Buckeye Talk that I'm part of, I use this theory of sort of like, man, it's like a first year. It's a first year. It's just tough and stuff's new. And in 2019, I I picked Ohio State to go nine and three and with year one of Ryan Day and Justin Fields. And there are people who still refer to me as nine and three Doug because they went <laughs> they went undefeated in the regular season and made the playoff. But I was like, <laughs> it's just hard. 
Yeah. You've never done it. Your quarterback's never done it. Your head coach has never done it. And it's like, oh, no. Oh, no. Like, Justin Justin Fields, like, ran for, like, a 75-yard touchdown on, like, the first quarter of the first game. It was like, oh, 9-3 and three might not be right. So, <laughs> you know, I lean that way naturally anyway. That Almost no matter how good you are, Saban wasn't great in year one, right? But, but it's – also, it's not like Ryan Day came into a, a terrible program. It's not like Brent Venables was coming into a terrible program. You noted this on a, on a previous pod that we did. Preseason All-Big 12 team, Baylor had five first-teamers. And again, leaning in the trenches, two offensive linemen, a tight end, a defensive lineman, and a linebacker. Boy, is that a nice, solid nucleus. Oklahoma had the punter, and that was it. Who rules? Michael Turk. Uh, go watch some punting highlights, but, uh, you know, not what we're looking for. So that also might be... Big 12 media with a lot of new guys in there who don't, you know, don't know what to do with Dylan Gabriel. Right. So I I, I get it. I'm not saying he should have been first team. So there just legitimately are a lot of questions where you could just say this could work, but I got to see it and I'm not going to assume it. But I thought finishing second in the preseason poll was pretty good for them. And they were close to Baylor. It wasn't like Baylor was an overwhelming pick. Right, right. No, a lot of people did pick them to win the Big 12. Uh, and, and certainly I remember, I think it was 2016 that I picked Oklahoma State to to win over Oklahoma. And I felt very dumb and was like, I'm never doing this again. But, um, you know, I, I think that this is a different era of Oklahoma. Uh, like you said, I, I mean, you can make the comparison to Ryan Day. People have obviously made the comparison to Lincoln Riley. The re- The reality is, you know, those were guys who were promoted, who took over programs that already existed and were continuity hires. This is not a continuity hire. Obviously, Brent Venables knows Oklahoma as well, if not more well than almost anybody outside of Bob Stoops. But it's different. It's really different, I think. And I think that, you know, you have this guy uh, coming in and you've got a new staff coming in and you've got, you know, I mean, it's it's been years since Jeff Levy has coached in the Big 12. The Big 12 has changed a lot over the past couple of years. I don't know. It's just a lot of variables to take into account. And that doesn't even count. Again, like you said, by year two, I expect this thing to be humming. I expect this thing to make a lot of sense. But when you have so many guys who haven't played together before, like football at its core is about let's all have 11 guys trying to do the same thing and understand that they're trying to do the same thing. When, when you have this many guys who haven't even practiced together, that's really, really tough, I think. And and that doesn't even get into the questions of, again, I mean, a lot of Dylan Gabriel's offense at UCF was throwing 50-50 deep balls and receivers winning, right? Well, I mean, you've got one receiver who I think can do that in Marvin Mims. I think he's going to have a tremendous season. He's absolutely going to be an all-Big 12 pick at the end of the year. He could be a borderline All-American. I don't I don't really know what you're doing after that. You know, I, I don't really love the guys they have behind him. You lost Austin Stogner to South Carolina. I don't really love what they have at tight end the same way I did last year. And... You know, you know, talking to Oklahoma fans, there's this sort of idea that like, well, we've been an 11 and two program at worst every year, basically. And now we've got a coaching upgrade, which is obviously a big assumption. Uh, but on top of that, it's like you don't just get to build on top of that when you're building something brand new. Right. It's not like you get to just add a defense on top of a great offense. You, you're switching out Lincoln Riley on the offensive side of the ball. Now, I think Jeff Lebby is a really good uh, offensive coordinator, but we're also going to kind of learn what was Jeff Lebby and what was Lane Kiffin in that old Miss offense. I, I think that 
it's reasonable to ask those kinds of questions. He's never been in charge of a full offense before at all, even though he's called plays uh, the last couple of years. Again, I'm very optimistic about what this staff, what this roster, the vision. I, I think that Brent Venables really could, in, in some ways, take Oklahoma to another level long term. But, you know, I, I wish I had a better example, but obviously I, I, I covered this team. So I, I'm going to come back to Baylor. Baylor went in 2015-16 from being one of the craziest offenses of all time to, in 2017, trying to be a defense-first program under Matt Roll. And they went one and eleven. Now that's not going to happen, just to be clear. But like, what is what is one and eleven at Oklahoma? Like, it probably is nine and three, right? Like, I, I think that they will play some really competitive games, and they'll just lose them because they haven't done it before. And so, no, I mean, I, I just think also you go back and look at their schedule a little bit. A couple of tricky games. I mean, I think that. <laughs> that Nebraska game could save Scott Frost's job, right? Like that Nebraska game could save it. And and I think that Brent Venables understands this rivalry because he was defensive coordinator there when these two teams still played. But I I don't know if if players can really be prepared for what's what Nebraska is going to try to do to them uh in Lincoln, right? And and they nearly lost that game last year with I think a much better team. You know, they go, they play Kansas State early in Big 12 play. I don't think that's ideal for them. Obviously, Red River is always a big game for them. Uh, they do get Baylor at home. They do get Oklahoma State at home, which I think that's a pretty big deal. But again, it's just, it's just Oklahoma has been like I talk about. They've been great in a Big 12 where everybody's just half a step below great. I think that they're half a step below great, and I think that makes the path a whole lot tougher. The Twitter voters... Not as big on Oklahoma. The call went out, and a lot of the people who were like, oh, let's make sure we vote yes on Baylor, then also did not feel that uh, Big 12 brotherhood and also vote yes on Oklahoma. <laughs> Oklahoma's a no from the Twitter folks. 71% no, uh, 29% yes. I will take the pressure off you on this one a little bit, and I'm also going to vote no. On Oklahoma, I think um, there's too much uncertainty. I think while Dylan Gabriel is a pretty good type of veteran to come in and throw a patch on this when Caleb Williams went out the door to USC, I think you make some good points about what's that going to look like in the Big 12. I think Brent Venables was was the hire they had to make. Again, let's have this discussion where Lincoln Riley leaves and Brent Venables is like, you know what? I'm good at Clemson. And who knows where they go next? Everybody knew they were going to Brent Venables and they got him. It's the exact right hire. But get back to me in year two. I just think right now, I just think it's too much, too much likelihood of a nine and three, eight and four, lose a goofy game. Oh, they're learning on the fly. Just normal first year stuff. And I'm not sure they're set up to overcome that with the roster of, yes, we said 40% of the guys have never played for Oklahoma. Are you a yes or no? I'm a no. Uh, I think they can play their way back in there, right? Like, I think that they absolutely have the potential to do that. Uh, again, I've, I've been conversing, gosh, everybody's been conversing with Oklahoma fans all offseason because they have a lot to say. But I, I think that there's a pathway for them to still be really good. They, they could still definitely be an 11 and one, you know, competing in the Big 12 title game type team. That's absolutely on the table. And I think by the end of the year, this is going to be a much better team than it will be at the beginning of the year. The question for me is just 
by the time they get to that Texas game, they already need to have things figured out. Because again, they go at Nebraska versus Kansas State at TCU versus Texas. That's a pretty tough stretch to all be playing before October 8th with a brand new coach and a brand new coaching staff. Uh, not even counting, again, that you get Baylor and Oklahoma State in the latter half of that schedule, uh, who I think will both be very good. So I, I, I just have a hard time putting those expectations on Brent Venables in year one. In year two, I'm very optimistic about what this team can be, but we're not in year two. We're in year one. Baylor's in. Oklahoma's out. We have five teams that we are discussing as college football playoff contenders in the second half of this show. Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, and Baylor. We will rank hardest path to easiest path to make the playoff those five teams next on the College Football Survivor Show. Don't miss the College Football Survivor Show bonus episode this week. Available only on Apple Podcasts. I do think that Greg Sankey does understand that there is value in the sport watching this product. And certainly by locking them out, I don't think that he feels like that's the best way to go. I don't think the SEC wants to destroy college football. It just wants to shape college football the way it wants to shape it. That is a world that is advantageous to the conference that has the best players and the most successful teams, but it is not exclusionary. So I thought Monday was a reminder of that. Do you agree that that version of the 12 team playoff with six conference champs as automatic qualifiers, we will never see that version. Do you think that's dead or do you think something that is that size with that many automatics could still happen? I think I lean towards it never happening. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for exclusive College Survivor Show bonus episodes. All right, so we went deep on that. That was deep on two Big 12 teams. But again, if you guys have listened for a long time, haven't listened for a long time, the whole point between now and the start of the season is that every week we're going to have a pretty decent discussion where we go across college football to all the contenders that matter. We're going to grow that list between now and the first weekend in September. But if that's like, man, is what is this, a big 12 show? No, it's not a big 12 show. Next week, we're going to talk about adding a contender from another conference, but we're always going to rank at least these five teams and then more. So let's do the easiest path to the playoffs. So you're, if you're the, if you have the easiest path, this is not disparaging. This is how much does your schedule increase your chances of making the playoff, right? So you, you know, easiest path. Cause again, if you're 12 and 0, you're in. So the easiest team is number one on your list. The team that has the most difficult path is number five on your list of these five contenders. Who's number five on your list, Shahan? So number five being the hardest uh, schedule. The hardest schedule of these five teams, Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Baylor, that we, we now have in our group. And th- this was honestly a very tough list for me to put together. Uh, but I'm going to go a little bit in a different direction, I think, with this fifth pick specifically. Actually, I don't know. I'm already disagreeing with myself. This is a oh, bad that's good podcasting. No, that's <laughs> good podcasting. It's like we have three people on the show. <laughs> so I think that the thing that's intriguing is that, um, you know, with, with Alabama and Georgia, they have to play each other. And nobody has anything like that. But... 
the flip side of that is that they both can probably lose against each other and still make the playoff. Right. So, so, so that's why I'm disagreeing with myself. That's, that's an interesting, that is an interesting way to think about it because it's not just about the regular season. We all know, like if you're going to get there, you probably have to play a conference championship game if you, unless you're going to come in the back door without doing that. So that, that really is something to take into account. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think at five, I'm going to go with Ohio state. Uh, they play Notre Dame in the first game of the year. They obviously play at Michigan state at Penn state. They play Michigan in the, in the game, of course. Um, I think that they're going to manage it just fine. Because uh, I think that Ohio State is probably better than everybody else, but I, I think that their path could be a little tricky. I also have Ohio State five, and I in looking at, I mean, uh, taking the SEC championship game. That's that's the toughest one of these five teams. Yes, what are the toughest games that they're going to play? You know, number one is Bama playing Georgia. Number two is Georgia playing Bama, or vice versa, or whatever. Those are the top two, so we get that. Next, though, I, I do think probably the two best opponents on any of these schedules of these five teams are Notre Dame and Michigan, which are Ohio State's first game and Ohio State's last regular season game. Now, Clemson also plays Notre Dame. So Notre Dame has a big role in potentially the playoff discussion because they're we'll have Notre Dame on this on this podcast in the next couple of weeks, should they be in. But um I just, I just think, and then you look at the rest of Ohio State's schedule. Wisconsin is real. I think Michigan State is real. They get Penn State at Halloween. What if Penn State's playing Drew Aller, the five-star freshman quarterback by then? That could be something. Michigan State, again, I think has a lot of real components left from last year's, you know, team that won a New Year's Six Bowl. They have like six real games with, two of them against teams that are like maybe two of the best eight teams in the country. So there's a discussion out there. So I'm still not sure who the third best team in the sec is. And as always with the sec, you start going through some of the schedules and you're like, I don't know. Is that a tough game Yeah, for Alabama? I don't, I can't. Is I, I it think really, I think one thing that makes this whole situation interesting is that it's hard to separate the schedule from the team that will be playing the schedule. Yes, because, for example, like if Clemson plays Alabama's schedule, I think that's kind of hard. If Alabama plays Alabama's schedule, I don't right. really think that's much anything, you know. And so it's like, how do you it's hard for me to split those two things. Um, <coughs> and same with same with Ohio State. Like, I think that Ohio State is going to generally be OK. Uh, I, I think that Notre Dame, you want to get them in week one. I don't think they're going to be as ready as they are in week 13 uh i'm probably a little lower on michigan than you are um actually no i know i i definitely am lower on michigan than you are but uh you know it's it's still a real game right it's still a tough game and i think same deal if you put uh if you put baylor or or clemson or whoever else through the schedule i think that it's a little dicey uh, i i don't think ohio state's gonna have a huge issue with it but um but you know it's, it's a tough path i think and there's some definite potholes I do think it's one of those. How many games do you have where if you play average, you could lose? And yeah. then there's also the cumulative effect, which has always been part of the deal in the SEC, which is over the course of time, 
all right, maybe they're not beating you, but they're beating you up. They're beating you up. They're yeah, beating you yeah. up. That's a real team. It's a real team. It's a real yeah. team. And then by the time you play the fifth real team in a role in a row, now all of a sudden maybe you're losing a game nobody thought you were going to lose because Auburn and Arkansas and LSU and Old Miss put you through, you know, a little bit of a grind that has a cumulative effect. So we agree that Ohio State is fifth on this list, which means that we think they have the toughest schedule. Who do you have fourth? I think I'm going to go with Clemson. Uh, Clemson, like I mentioned last week, I think they've got some real potholes on their schedule. <clears throat> you obviously mentioned playing Notre Dame on November 5th on the road, by the way, too. I actually think that that month of November in general is pretty tough that they go at Notre Dame versus Louisville versus Miami <clears throat> versus South Carolina. Like, I think that those are four tricky games, all of which they could potentially lose. Uh NC State on October 1st, I think, will be an interesting game. I'm curious to see how they match up with Wake Forest. They, they did pretty well last year, but I think Wake Forest is going to be better. And then at Florida State, I think it's going to be kind of an interesting game as well. So they kind of have this mix of like, I, I think they've got some like high quality opponents in NC State and uh, and Notre Dame and also maybe some upstarts in Louisville and Miami and South Carolina. It, it's just, I think, a mix of different types of tricky teams. Outside of Notre Dame, who I don't, again, think will be an elite team, I, they don't have like a scary, scary, scary individual game. But I think just the path is just a little complicated enough that uh, that I have them right now at number four. I had Clemson three. I still do think that it's three games that it comes down to. It's Notre Dame, Miami, North Carolina State. It's interesting. There are a couple teams on this list that play two of these five teams. Yeah. And South Carolina is one of them that South Carolina <laughs> ends the season with Clemson in week 13, but they, uh, South Carolina is playing Georgia in week three. And it's just one of those things. And I think, you know, it's one of those things we, you and I, every now and then we'll say things where it's like, oh, is that exactly the same thing we expressed in a previous pod? I've gotten the vibe from you that you're not that excited about Spencer Rattler potentially in South Carolina. You don't think he's going to turn around the Gamecocks. And so then it's like, well, you know, clubs has got to end the year with South Carolina. It's like, really? Is that what we're doing? I, now? I think that Spencer Rattler will come in and be like a normal, like fun, chaotic quarterback in the SEC. I, I, I just I come short of saying that I think he's going to be just like outright good. Like, I, I don't think that that's what you should expect from Spencer Rattler. I don't think that's what you should expect from South Carolina. I, I think that what I expect from South Carolina is for them to be like, I'm trying to think of a good example, like, like some of the like old big 12 Mike Leach teams, right? Where like they can beat hmm. anybody, but like, they're not consistent. They're not going to do it every week. They're not going to like go and challenge the best teams in the league. That's, that's <sighs> not fair. Why would you expect that of them? And, and so I'm just a little I, I feel like we're getting to a place where we're like, oh, South Carolina is going to be good now. And I don't know, man, that, that just feels like a lot to ask of them. And they also, by the way, like you mentioned, have a pretty tough schedule. So if they were just able to replicate seven and six again, I think that's great. I have no problems with that whatsoever. And there is also the difference between talking about a team as like, hey, should South Carolina be in our playoff contender mix right. versus can South Carolina get it together for a game and screw up somebody else's season? Those are and two different things. The other thing, too, is that like I've seen people talk about like, 
is South Carolina going to be the second best team in the SEC East? And I'm like, man, that's unfair. That, that is yeah. not fair. Well, what are you talking about? Like Kentucky won 10 games last year. Uh, like Florida, I think is going to be a lot better. Tennessee was as good a team as they were last year. And I think could improve even more this year. Like being, if, if, if uh, South Carolina went eight and four this year, like hang a banner, man. Like the, this is a really tough program to be the head coach at and for them to just be pretty good. And like you said, maybe ruin a season. And by the way, yeah, if they can beat Clemson, then like hire Shane Beamer to a lifetime contract. Like that's what yeah. this program should be looking for. Also, like we talked a lot in our ACC preview about the quarterback talent, in the ACC, you just ran through three teams, Florida with Anthony Richardson, Tennessee with Hendon Hooker and Kentucky with Will Levis that might have quarterbacks better than Spencer Rattler. I don't know. Again, Spencer Rattler was the preseason Heisman favorite a year ago, but those three other guys, they all had better years last year than Spencer Rattler did in a lot of ways. So, I mean, there's, there's some intriguing guys in the sec. You had Clemson four. I had Clemson three. I had Baylor four. Sure. Where do you have Baylor three? Yeah. I have them at three. Okay. Um, So I do think that's, you know, it's kind of, we're trying to divide here between Baylor and Clemson. Baylor's got that, BYU game early, a lot of this is dependent on how good you think BYU is. And I think BYU is a team that we will discuss in this podcast before the season starts. And then the rest of it is everybody in the Big 12 plays each other. So Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, Texas. You know, again, I think that's kind of manageable, but this is another Texas plays Bama and Texas plays Baylor. So it's it's one of those things. Sometimes, again, we're trying to just think about the schedule, but when Texas plays Bama, we're like, eh. I don't know. And then Texas plays Baylor and you're like, Ooh, that's a tough one for Baylor. It's like, it's the same team. So we, we can't let the inherent uh, strength yeah. of the team we're talking about affect the schedule yeah. too much. I just think those, the three other best teams in the big 12 plus BYU, I think is a little harder to me than what I think is a three game schedule for Clemson with North Carolina state. My, I just don't know what to think of Miami. I love Tyler Van Dyke. They're obviously recruiting really well right now. There's a lot of Miami momentum, but again, we just had a whole conversation about first-year coaches. Is Mario Cristobal going to go ten and two in year one at Miami? I mean, no, I, no, I don't think no. people think that. So how no. really, how tough really is that Miami game against a Clemson defense that's going to be one of the best defenses in the country? So we both had Ohio State number five on this list, toughest schedule. We're we're split on Baylor Clemson, which brings us to the SEC teams at the top. Who do you have two and who do you have one for it? And again, one is the easiest path of these five teams. I think one, because because we can t- touch on that first, has to be Georgia. Like Georgia, <laughs> they get Oregon in week one and like Oregon's replacing a coach. And also they were only pretty good last year anyway. And they also lost one of the best players in all of college football and gave on Thibodeau, uh, along with the vast majority of their skill talent, by the way, too. Uh so, you know, I like that game's interesting. There'll be some fun storylines about Dan Lanning coming back and playing the team. He just led to a national championship. And then Georgia will win 44 to 13. Like, it's it's not going to be close. Then I, th- I think the East is still very mediocre, right? At South Carolina, at Missouri versus Vanderbilt versus Florida, who's, uh, you know, still going to be rebuilding, I think, versus Tennessee at Kentucky. And then the two games that they get in the crossover, by the way, they get Auburn, who's a freaking mess right now. So they could end Brian Harson's career on October 8th. Uh, and then they go at Mississippi State on November 12th. A team totally just 
the most unprepared to fight against what uh, what Georgia does well defensively. Like they're going to sit back and be like, we're going to run mesh against Georgia's linebackers. And guess what, Mike Leach? That ain't going to work so hot. It's not going to be very good. So, you know, God bless them. Uh, and then they get Georgia Tech in the last game of the season and Georgia Tech probably will have fired their coach by then, to be honest. So uh, I don't know. A- Alabama's schedule isn't brutal by any means. That's why we have them second on the list. Uh, and the other thing to mention about Georgia, of course, is they will play Alabama. But if they're 12 and 0, they're going to make the playoff regardless, uh, yeah. even if they lose to Bama. Um, Alabama, you know, at Texas is, I think, more of a real non or it's probably on par, probably with that Oregon game. Yeah, I was going like, to say, what do you think is that? What do you think is a tougher game? Because because Georgia, Oregon's in Atlanta, right? right? And Bama has to go to Texas. I, I think that I think that they're comparable. I think that Oregon's probably a slightly tougher matchup, but um, I think that Texas Texas has some things that I think can actually compete with Georgia, if that makes sense. Like I think that. Quinn Ewers, I think that some of the skill talent that they have, like those are things that actually could cause some issues uh, against Alabama, but not consistently enough, obviously, to compete in the game, but just like to where it can be kind of interesting. I don't think Oregon does anything that scares Georgia. Like, I kind of feel like that's like, and again, I think Oregon's a higher quality team, but like, I also feel like sometimes when a team is like a crazy offensive team, it gives them a little bit more like leeway to just do stuff, right? Like they're not going to get totally yeah. stopped, I don't think. But uh, but neither of these games are going to be, I, I don't think, that competitive. But I think they're comparable enough that you can kind of call called it a wash. Uh, <laughs> Alabama does get Vanderbilt in at Tennessee in in the crossovers, which I think are pretty manageable. At Arkansas, Texas A&M, Mississippi State, at LSU, at Ole Miss uh, versus Auburn. Like this is a very mediocre sec west right now they're they're really i don't think is a special team right now uh texas a&m has a lot of talent and also alabama is gonna wipe them off the freaking planet after what happens last year uh so you know i don't know both these teams are gonna go 12 and 0 and play in the sec title game and that'll be it it is funny to me that alabama is playing the old southwest conference in the first half of the year yeah three of their first six games are texas arkansas texas a&m both Georgia and Alabama, they both play Auburn. They both play Tennessee. And those are like classic examples of like, I don't, I don't know, are Auburn and Tennessee? They're kind of good. It's one of those things, again, as you said, when I was talking about Ohio State schedule, I brought up Iowa. If it was like, oh, Alabama has to play Iowa, would we be like, <laughs> I don't know, watch out, Alabama. Is, is Iowa, who's better, Auburn, Iowa, or Tennessee? I I don't know. Are any of those teams that going to actually beat Ohio State, Georgia, or Alabama? So I, I do just think um, when you're playing in the the SEC West, no, Texas A&M and LSU like aren't there right now. But the way they recruit and sort of like the depth of talent, you just never know. There's They're going to put a few more, I think, dudes on the field, one through 22, than some of the teams that Georgia is going to play in the East, just where those teams are right now. So that's why I do think I had Alabama too. There's a slightly tougher Georgia has the easiest. I will say again, that thing, I don't know what will Levis, the quarterback at Kentucky transfer from Penn state, who again, it's one of those things you're always looking for quarterbacks in the big 10. And it's like, how did Penn state let will Levis get away? And there are people who are like, will Levis is a first round quarterback. He's a little, I mean, he's a little bit of that, 
I can run it. I can throw it. I've got a pretty big body kind of guy. It's a really interesting guy. I just don't know that it's it's week 12. It's the second to last game of the season for Georgia. You're just looking for stuff, right? It's like, hey, South Carolina super early with Georgia. Could Spencer Rattler just blow up the playoff race in September? Probably not, but I don't know. And then super late when we are all geared for a Georgia-Alabama SEC championship game and they're the two best teams in the country, could Will Levis blow that up late? But I think that's the whole point with the Georgia schedule. You're just trying to find trap games because when it comes to like actual head-to-head, can anybody really compete? The answer is probably a hard no. Yeah, can uh, can 2022 Blaine Gabbert uh, lead Kentucky to a win over Georgia? It's hard to say. <laughs> Blaine Gabbert made a boatload of money in the NFL, man. So yeah, and, and and so is uh, so is Will Levis. Somebody's going to draft him number three. Thank God it's not going to be my Bears because they they already have Justin Fields. It feels good to not have to worry about that, to be honest. But, yeah, like it. <laughs> Oh, I'm trying to think there, there. There's been like some like Mitch Leidner, like, oh, he's big and can throw. Oh, boy. You know, I've, it's crazy stuff, man. I, and, and, but as you said, Kentucky had a great year last year. Yes. And Will Levis because of their was running one, back who is back, by the way. Right. And but and Will Levis was one of the engines there. You can't you can't have a 10 win season with a terrible quarterback. So, um, again, people are kind of probably overrating him, which leads us to have discussions like this. He's good. He's a good, solid quarterback for a good, solid SEC team. But we just don't think (laughs) that anyone's going to bother these two teams all that much. Any game they would lose for either of these two teams would be a pretty huge upset. And again, Ohio State, which we said had the toughest schedule, also is probably going to be like a – I'm sure – I mean, the line's already out. I don't have it in front of me. They're probably a two-touchdown favorite against Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah, uh, but I Notre Dame. All, I think I did see that. Yeah, Notre Dame also might be the seventh best team in the country. So I mean, like yeah. that's we're just talking about the gaps between some yeah. of the tiers here are so wide that <laughs> right. there's a there's a two touchdown difference between the second best team or the third best team in the country and the seventh best team in the country. So that's kind of where college football is right now. So our lists, we both had Ohio State fifth. You had Clemson fourth, Baylor third. I had that reverse. Baylor fourth, Clemson third. We both had Bama second and Georgia first. That means we think of our five contenders right now. Georgia has the easiest path to the college football playoff. Next week, we will discuss another team or two, and then we will rank all the contenders again in a different area, and we'll get on the field next week. We'll do something where it's a specific part of the team, run game, receivers, pass rush, something about the defense. We'll, we usually try to save quarterback because that's a sexy conversation. Not that every conversation on this podcast isn't sexy. When we come back last year at this time, we were trying to let you guys get to know us a little bit. We had a personal question that we ended every podcast with. We're going to try that again. And I'm trying to think of a super personal, embarrassing question to ask Shahan next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, Doug and Shahan are back. I I have one because I know my answer, because I'll answer the same question. And then next week, Shahan will come up with a question for both of us. And my story is a little weird. I don't know if people will think it's cute or scary. Doug story? I can't believe that. Um, So I'm just going to ask Shahan this, which is how much do you cook and do you enjoy it or hate it? And how varied is your ability to make food that nourishes your body? 
<laughs> That's a great question, actually. Uh, so I would say that I am primarily the person who cooks dinner, especially at home, because uh, I work from home. And I would say my my abilities are competent, right? Like, I, I think that I can do basically anything that's asked of me. Uh, you know, I can follow directions on a, on a recipe very well. Like, I know how to do all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I, I'm pretty decent at it. Actually, I will say the toughest thing for me is just figuring out what the hell I want to eat. Yeah. That's the worst. That's my, I mean, this might be an exaggeration, but it might not be. I think that having to figure out what to eat might be my least favorite part of being an adult. I would much rather somebody just tell me what I have to eat or just say this food's available than have to think about what am I feeling right now? It, it, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer because then what happens is then I'm like, well, fine, I'll just make whatever's easiest. And that's usually not what's best or I'll yeah. go and pick up the easiest thing. And that's always not what's best. And uh, yeah, so if somebody could just sit me down and be like, this is what you're eating today. I'm all about it. Yes. I, there's a famous uh, story that my wife enjoys telling on me that uh, when we were younger and I don't know, maybe five years into our marriage we were cooking one night and i like exclaimed to my wife you know what i think we can make seven things and that i was so excited that i thought there were seven different dinners that we combined were capable of cooking and that was like a huge number in my mind <laughs> and so i really have two and I don't cook that much, but if I do cook, it's either going to be chicken quesadillas or just like chicken and rice kind of mixed together. And that's kind of it. And I don't really know how to do anything else, but I hate cooking and my wife hates cooking, which leads us to the idea of the money that you would spend like at Chipotle just is so worth it from from a happy <laughs> It's not even that the food tastes that's good. It just removes the stress yes. of cooking that yes. that value is like, okay, we'll, we'll cut back. Where can we cut back in other aspects of our lives to allow ourselves to eat fast, casual food out or for takeout as much as possible? Because the idea of cooking both sends us, it sends us both into a tailspin. <laughs> so, so. Has this resulted in either of your kids being like, this is a joke. I'm going to learn how to cook. Cause like, I feel like sometimes that happens where like whenever somebody can't do something like, uh, like a kid is like, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll handle it myself. So, and as often happens and the parents out there listening will find it had opposite effects on the two children, the older <laughs> child. Now, whenever we do cook, throws her body on the ground because she just wants out to eat. She doesn't want anything <laughs> cooked in this house. And the younger child is like, get out of the way. I'll figure this out. Give me a pot. <laughs> give me a pan. I'll cook. So it's, it's disparate reactions from the two children. Neither of them particularly good and healthy. They're both on opposite ends, but we just, um, we're just super busy. Not that other people aren't super busy, but it, it befuddles both of us. Those people, and listen, we're fortunate that just, you know, we can handle a Chipotle meal more often than not. It fits in the in the the budget. But the idea that some people are like, oh, you know what's going to relax me to cook 
I will enjoy this process. It that feels like do you enjoy like do you enjoy throwing yourself down on a bed of nails? Like what? How does that even take place that you would enjoy? Who enjoys this? Like do people like if once you figure it out and it's like oh I'm gonna make this. I need seven ingredients. I'm looking at the book. I'm chopping stuff up. I'm measuring things. Do you enjoy that process or is it hell on earth? So when I first graduated from college and was living in Atlanta, working my first job, I actually used to like eat the same thing almost every day. And that doesn't bother me. Like I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I would rather almost get that out of the way. And so like, I think that when it's sort of per se, like, prep cookie you know when it's very like you know exactly how it's supposed to go like it's just mindless like i think that i like sort of the menial mindlessness but what i so so obviously though when you're talking about legitimate cooking it's very like oh let me put a dash of this let me add this flavor let me taste oh this i i can't think that much during it right like and i have to i actually Mm. really prefer to cook by myself like we've tried to do uh with my wife like let's cook together and i'm just very like I don't know if I'm doing this right. Don't look at me. Like, yeah, I just yeah, do it yeah. my way sort of thing. And uh, <laughs> this is this is a good question. I, I enjoyed this now, but it's a uh, it's it's definitely, I would say, more of a stressor than it is a quality. But the issue just becomes that we just like we just don't have like the best ideas of places to like go out and eat healthy too. Cause, um, and and so that's why we try to, even if it's something that's like frozen or something like that, or a prepped meal or something like that, (laughs) we try to lean on some of the home stuff more because of that. But also in the last month we've been traveling a lot and I'm totally out of rhythm. So we've eaten out like every day. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and it's one of those, it was one of the things in the pandemic and listen, pandemic and it's still it's not completely gone but sitting down with my family in a restaurant where everybody can get exactly what they want and where our children cannot escape from us and where they have to talk to us that hour of out to eat especially with teenagers right where everybody's happy nobody's stressed and you're staring at each other and having a conversation i would pay a million dollars a meal for that. So like that when when it was like, hey, no one's really going out to eat right now. Like that was like a thing that I missed because it was such like a family bonding time. Because when we were at home, if we're cooking and trying to do that, somebody's stressed and somebody doesn't really like what's being cooked. And it's not the same thing. Now, maybe it's bad parenting that we have not been able to like get over that hump. But it's like order what makes you happy. And then with a smile on your face, tell me about your life. I don't uh, what, what, what I signed the credit card bill. I don't care what that costs because that's the number one thing I want to spend money on nourishing my children in a way that makes them want to talk to me. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like that's how I'll, I'll, I'll wear the same underwear 50 straight days. I will cut my underwear budget by 90% for that. So anyway, that's where we are. If anyone has c- cooking tips though, please feel free to send them our way. All right. So, Go back and listen. We talked about sort of the news of the week on the Apple podcast. If you like this show, the other show is just more of us. So it's the topic's different, but it's kind of the same thing. So $2.99 a month. We'd love to have you there. We love having you here. We're back in the flow. The season's here. ACC meetings this week. SEC meetings this week. Big 10 meetings next week. Everything's happening. College football is here. 
And we are glad that you are with us on the College Football Survivor Show. Make sure you're reading cbssports.com. You can find a big chunk of Shahan Jeharaja work over there. And just if, you, if you're not subscribed to us yet and you're listening, you know, click that button. We'd love to have you as a regular listener. And again, CFB Survivor Show on Twitter. That lets you vote. So Baylor's in, Oklahoma's not. We're going to put another poll up next week. And your vote is one third of it. Should this team be worthy of discussion? We'd love to have your votes and make you part of the show. For Shahan, I'm Doug. And that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.